I cannot imagine more fitting words to sing. Jesus Christ, our living hope. So you know, if you've been with us, that we've been journeying through the Gospel of John. And so you can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16. We're going to look at the last half of that chapter. And I'll tell you, I think in God's sovereign timing, he has brought us to a perfect text for our week together today, or for today, as we think about the situation that we find ourselves in with a global pandemic, and we come to the last half of John chapter 16, and really this chapter offers us a remedy for the fear that we feel. And I'm so glad for it. And Jesus wants to help us see a fear, a, a, no, I'm sorry, not a fear, but a remedy for fear that is given to us because it points us, this remedy points us to an ultimate expression of his sovereignty and his love, which said at the beginning of our time together that all fighting of fear really does begin with believing that our God is sovereign, that he's in control and that nothing is above him or over him or prevents him from working out his will, but also the belief that our God loves us. He loves us deeply and profoundly. And so we find in our text today, Jesus pointing us to the ultimate example of both the sovereignty of God and the love of God. So look with me at John chapter 16, where we see this. We see that the resurrection of Jesus gives us a joy that can't be taken away. That's kind of our big idea today. The resurrection of Jesus gives us a joy that cannot be taken away. So let's look at John chapter 16, verse 16, beginning there. We'll read together all the way through the end of the chapter says this, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me because I'm going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. 
when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. As we look at this text, I said sort of the big idea is that the resurrection of Jesus gives us a joy that can't be taken away from us. And we saw that. Jesus referred directly to that. But let me give you a little bit of scene setting, if we can, or setting the stage as we start. So the first thing that we see in verse 16 is that Jesus is referring to his crucifixion and his resurrection. When he says, a little while and you will see me no longer, he's saying to the disciples, I'm going to the cross. Like this day is coming. In fact, it has come. And as I go to the cross, then I'm gonna go into the grave. And so you're not gonna see me any longer in just a little while. But then he immediately follows that by saying this, and again, a little while and you will see me. So what he's referring to there then in the second half of that verse and what creates all kinds of questions for the disciples is what, what does he mean when he says a little while you're not gonna see me and then a little while you are gonna see me. What he's referring to there is his death and his resurrection. In other words, I'm gonna go away, I'm gonna go into the grave, but then just a little while after that, you will see me again when I'm resurrected. Now some scholars debate whether Jesus, when he's talking here, is talking about the difference or the time between when he ascends into heaven and when he returns again. Is that a little while that he's talking about? But the indicators of the text here really do point us to the reality that what he's actually talking about with the disciples is the time between when he goes into the grave and when they see him again after he's been resurrected. And so what that means then is that the purpose of this text is to teach us about the kind of joy that the resurrection can give. So everything that he says after verse 16 and, and then explaining to the disciples, look, you're confused. Let me tell you what I mean by this. Everything about this is meant to point us towards the resurrection of Jesus and what the implications of that resurrection are. So we're getting a, a bit of an Easter preview, if you will, right? I mean, on Easter, we focus on the resurrection. We think about it, we talk about it. But even leading up to the cross, Jesus is giving a little preview for us of what it means to be those who worship a resurrected king. And what the implications of that. And in particular here, he's going to tell us that the, the biggest implication, or one of the biggest, we can say it that way, is that you will have a joy that is given to you because I have been raised from the dead that cannot be taken from you. In other words, no one can come and snatch it from you. No one can cause it to wane or to fade. Now, that challenges us to think about what is our experience like? Is that our experience to have this sort of abiding joy, this joy that doesn't leave us even in the midst of sorrow? I was saying to the team before we even started, we were praying together. I love the fact, I love the fact that Jesus doesn't deny that sorrow will be part of our experience, right? That sorrow is absolutely a part of the experience of a believer in this world. And yet he's telling us here that there is a joy that is so present and so prevalent that it can't be taken away. And it's the joy of the resurrection. So the disciples are a bit confused, but notice how Jesus responds to the questions. He doesn't respond by saying, oh, I'm talking about my resurrection. He responds by talking about the implications of what that will bring about for them. So he still leaves them a bit in mystery. He's not gonna just straightforwardly answer their questions, but what he is gonna do is plant the seeds for them so that after he's resurrected, they'll look back and see and understand, oh, this thing I'm experiencing in my heart, in my mind, as a result of the fact that it's been resurrected, Jesus talked about that 
in advance so that I could begin to understand if I'm one of the disciples, I can begin to understand that this resurrection that has taken place is not just this sort of thing that happened in one part of the world at one time, but it is the great event in all of human history. The thing I am witnessing is the pinnacle event in all of human history. In fact, everything that's come before it has pointed towards it and everything that will come after it will point back to it and everything both before and after, derive their meaning and their purpose from that resurrection. Everything revolves around this moment that Jesus is talking about with us together. So I want you to really think about that. When we say that the resurrection gives us a joy that can't be taken away, have you ever considered, I mean, ask this question, how many things in your life can't be taken away? How many things in your life can never be taken from you. Your money can be taken from you. Family can be taken from you by death. Relationships can come and go. There is, the thing we're experiencing now, we're watching our stock market, we're watching businesses struggle in the midst of this, uh, of this virus spreading through our world, and we feel the fear of that. We feel the sorrow of that because we, it reminds us of a couple things. It reminds us, one, that, that life is really a vapor as the scriptures talk about, but it also reminds us and humbles us to remember that there is nothing that cannot be taken from us. There's nothing in this life that cannot be taken from us except the eternal life that's offered in Jesus Christ and the joy that comes from his resurrection. So think about, I mean, when we say that it's a joy that can't be taken from us, that seems like a nice thing that a preacher says, but it's not a small claim that Jesus is making. He's not just saying, oh, it's this, yeah, just kind of like just run right past that. He's saying there's a joy that can be imparted to you because of the resurrection that's gonna come and it can never be taken from you. And there are so few things that cannot be taken from us. So let's start here though, because we need to, we've, we've kind of introduced ourselves to the text now. We understand what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about his resurrection and the joy that comes from it. But we have to ask the question, what is joy? And so I, as I was preparing this week, I sort of started running on the, well, why can't joy be taken from us? Why can't this joy of the resurrection, why is it permanent? I mean, what is it about it that means that it can't be taken away? And that's where I was sort of immediately running. And then I recognized that joy is really hard to get our hands around. I mean, it can be a hard thing to get our minds around what is joy. So I wanna start there today. I wanna start with what is joy, and then we'll talk about why the joy of the resurrection can't be taken away. So if you look at your dictionary, the, uh, you know, you can go to yourself right now and get it off if you want, right? But the dictionary defines joy in this way. It says the emotion, joy is the emotion of great delight caused by something exceptionally good. All right, get that. The emotion of great delight caused by something exceptionally good. I disagree with that definition and the Bible disagrees with it. And here's why. Because the Bible expects joy to be non-circumstantial or to, to transcend circumstances. So that the Bible calls for joy and even rejoicing in the midst of trial, in the midst of tribulation. It calls for us to, regardless of our circumstances, to have an abiding joy. But our world thinks about joy the way this dictionary definition thinks about it. That it's this sort of emotional uprising that happens in us because of good circumstances come to us. And it's enough to make us really happy, to make us really excited. Here's how I would offer the Bible defines joy. 
There's not one spot where you're gonna find this, but I think if you kind of put together the sum total of all that the Bible has to say about joy, I think it might be defined this way. That joy is no doubt an emotion. It's an emotional fullness. So a sense of being full emotionally that comes from seeing your present experience through the lens of God's final victory. Let me say that again. Joy is an emotional fullness that comes from seeing your present experience, whether good or bad, through the lens of God's final victory. So of course the big difference there is that this is not a joy that depends upon happy circumstances that then make us feel an overwhelming sense of emotional happiness. But rather, there is an emotional sense of being full in Christ that never leaves us regardless of our good circumstances or our bad. And here's why. Because when we experience good circumstances, the emotional fullness that we experience, that joy is there because we know it's just a taste of what's coming. We know it's a, it's a foretaste of the fullness of the, of the expression of God's final victory that we're gonna get one day and experience one day. But the other side of that is also true. We know that when we have bad circumstances, well, how can there be an emotional fullness of joy in that moment? And the reason that's possible is because we're viewing that circumstance through the lens of God's final victory. And when we do that, we recognize that this will be overcome by that final victory. And so we find ourselves having that emotional fullness, even knowing this too shall pass, we often say. This will come, this will come, and this will go. It's not the final word. And that leads us then, so that's a bit of what is joy. And that leads us then to the next question, uh, which is why can't the joy that comes from the resurrection be taken away? And I, I wanna sort of lean into that. I just wanna give you two reasons today, right? This text gives us two reasons why that joy can't be taken away. The first is this, because the resurrection means all sorrow gives way to joy. And that's, that's no small thing. The resurrection guarantees that all sorrow gives way to joy. And the second reason, which we'll get to eventually, is because the resurrection means we can pray with power. The resurrection means that we can pray with power, with great effect. And we saw that as we read through it, we'll come to that. But let's look at verses 20 and 21 and that first reason why the resurrection, the kind of joy that the resurrection gives is the kind that can't be taken away is because the resurrection means all sorrow gives way to joy. Look again at verse 20 and 21. It's 22 where he says, no one will take your joy from you. But look what he says in verse 20 and 21. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Okay, so what he's just said there in verse 20 is that whatever sorrow you're experiencing because of my cross, because I've gone away, Jesus is saying to the disciples, that's gonna turn into joy because he knows that the resurrection is coming. So in other words, what he's saying is the resurrection will turn the sorrow you feel into joy. And then he gives us an illustration to help us understand this in verse 21. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So that's a really helpful illustration, obviously. What Jesus is saying is you want an example of how sorrow gets replaced by joy, how sorrow gives way to joy? Just look at the birth of a human being. And when that happens, there is great sorrow and pain and difficulty in the process of bringing that human being into the world. But that sorrow, that grief, that hardship gives way to joy. And we have to ask, well, why does it give way to joy? And the answer is this, because the thing that is produced through the sorrow is so much greater than the sorrow itself itself 
that it causes us to misremember the sorrow now. The joy is so great, it's so overwhelming. Look, uh, my wife and I, we have three kids. And when Kinley, our first, was born, uh, I did ask permission to share this story, by the way. Uh, When Kinley was born, you know, I'll just say the labor was difficult. It was not easy. It was a little bit elongated. And, uh, you know, Kinley was taking her time. And so, which has proved to continue to be true uh, as, as we've uh, walked through life. So she's taking her time. And I remember sitting there and thinking to myself, this is, I, I'm, I don't have any other words of encouragement to offer. I feel like I've kind of run out of, of ways to go, you can do it. I think I must've said, you can do it. And I, I love you and you're the best, you know, 500 times. And so finally, you know, Kinley comes and all is well. Mom is healthy. She's healthy. And we're overjoyed. We're in tears. And I'm telling y'all, I thought to myself, she's never going to, this is it. One kid for us. One kid. That's all. And at the end of it, I think it was two days later, we're in the hospital and we're sitting there and she turns to me and she goes, you know, I didn't think that was so bad. I could totally do that again. I thought to myself, that is not my recollection of this circumstance. That is not how I remember what just took place. There was like this amnesia. I'm not kidding. It was, and she meant it. She wasn't just sort of being, I don't know, overly, um, you know, maybe endorphins were kicking in. I don't know. But whatever was happening, it was like there was an amnesia that she had lost sight of the difficulty of what had transpired. And I always think about that when I read this text because it's absolutely exactly what Jesus just said, right? He said, when the baby comes into the world, there's so much joy over that new life. You know, this absolutely precious thing, this gift that's been given to you. There's so much joy over that, that the sorrow, it just seems to fade from memory. And so here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the resurrection is the guarantee that all sorrow eventually gives way to joy. All of it. There is no sorrow that you and I experience that will not, even if it takes until Jesus comes, there is no sorrow that will not give way to joy. And thank God that sometimes that sorrow gives way to joy long before Jesus comes. But whatever sorrow we face will eventually give way to joy. And the reason for that is because it's rooted in the resurrection and the resurrection guarantees the victory. Here's essentially how we might see that. The resurrection is the guarantee that Jesus lives and because he lives, we will live forever with him. Jesus will never die again is another way to say that. He will never die again. Which is why go to verse 33 now. Let me show you this because here's what he's saying. In verse 33, kind of at the end of the text that we read, he said, I've said these things to you, disciples, that in me you may have peace. Okay, so kind of a counterpart to joy there. I want you to have peace. In the world, you will have trouble or tribulation. That's gonna be a reality. But then what does he say next? But take heart. I have overcome the world. In other words, what he's saying is my resurrection is the way in which I have overcome the world. Nothing can hold me any longer. I will never die again. I reign supreme because, I've, because I will rise from the grave. I know I will rise. And because I will rise, nothing can defeat me ever again. So think about what this means. If all sorrow gives way to joy because of the resurrection, it's the guarantee that it will happen, then how could this joy ever be taken away? Regardless, if it's good circumstances or bad, the joy remains because there's a fixed point at the end of time that we are moving towards, which is the victory of Jesus over all the world. He has overcome the world and we will experience that. And so now, as we said, what is joy? It's the ability to view all of our circumstances through that lens so that joy stays with us 
whether we are in good times or bad. Because we know that even in the bad, the sorrow will give way to ultimate joy and the resurrection is what has made that happen. And I wanna make a point here. Remember, as we've gone through the Gospel of John, one of the things we've seen is that the world, when John refers to the world, and it's been the last couple of weeks in particular, we've kind of reminded ourselves of this each time. When John talks about the world, he's talking about it as sort of the opposite of the kingdom of God. If the kingdom of God, when that gets talked about in the gospels, is the place where Jesus is ruling and reigning, where his authority is actively present and people are submitting to that authority and loving it, that's the kingdom. The opposite is the world in John's lingo and his language. He doesn't just mean the physical world that we live in. He means that he sees the world as this sort of spiritual and yes, physical sphere of existence where people and the creation are in active rebellion against God. They're under the effects of the fall. So wherever Jesus is not ruling and reigning, in essence, uh, actively being submitted to, his, I should say his rule and reign not actively being enjoyed and submitted to, where that's not happening, that's the definition of the world as John sees it. Now think about what he just said in verse 33. Jesus said, take heart, I have overcome the what? The world. So when we think about that in light of our present circumstances, I want you to remember Jesus is not just saying there, I've overcome all the effects of sin for people so that they might come and worship me. That's absolutely true, that all who would come to him can come now because he's been resurrected. But in overcoming the world, he's also saying, I've overcome all the effects of sin in the world, including viruses that spread through our world. He's overcome that. We experience the sorrow of it now, but Jesus has promised he has overcome the world. And that includes every aspect of the fallen creation in which we live now, which experiences the sorrow of sin and the effects of sin, but will not always because the joy of the resurrection will come and it can't be taken away. Now let's look at the second thing. And there's more than two here, but these were the ones that stood out to me. So I wanted to point them to you today. The second thing that we see is the resurrection, the joy of the resurrection can't be taken away because it means we can pray with power. Look at verse 24 again, now kind of in the middle of our text. In verse 24, actually let's start in 23. In 23 he says, in that day you will ask nothing of me. What he's getting at there is he's saying, disciples, you have a lot of questions right now and he doesn't mean you're, you're not gonna ask me the questions, you're gonna ask the Father questions. What he means is you're gonna get such clarity when you see the resurrection on what I'm doing in the world that you're not gonna have questions anymore, right? The disciples have a lot of questions, a lot of confusion over what Jesus means and what he's doing, what he's up to, but the resurrection clarifies that for them. That's another gift of the resurrection, by the way, and probably another reason why joy can't be taken from us is because now we can view every one of our uh, events in life and even like try and figure out where am I going in life and what purpose should I be about and how should I spend my time, my energy, my money, all of that. It really gets answered by the cross and the resurrection. Once we've seen that, we know that everything has to fit underneath it. We know that for those of us who follow Jesus, there's nothing that can't, that shouldn't be dictated to us by this great truth. I said earlier that the resurrection is the seminal event, so the, the greatest event in all of human history and all of human history point before it points to it and all of history after it points back to it and all of human history before and after derives its meaning and its purpose. I'm using those words very intentionally. It's meaning and its purpose from that resurrection. In other words, where they align with it and point to it and are glad about it, 
they have significant good meaning, right? But where they fight against it or deny it, they lose, they lose purpose, they lose meaning. They end up fighting against the very thing that could give them purpose and meaning. If that's true of global events, is it true of our lives? Yeah, absolutely. It's true for us too. So our lives define their, derive their meaning and their purpose from this resurrection. So he's saying to them in verse 23 there, you're not gonna, you're not gonna ask you're not gonna ask of me. In fact, there's two different words for ask used in this text. There's the kind of like, you're not gonna ask me a question, right? Uh, and there's, you're not gonna ask me for something, right? So when he talks about prayer, he's gonna, talk, he's gonna use the word for ask that means asking for something from him. But when he talks about in verse 23, you'll ask nothing of me. He means you're not gonna ask me questions any longer, which is how we know he's talking about something different here. He's saying, this is gonna give you clarity. This thing's gonna happen when it comes. You're gonna get real clear about the purpose of life and its meaning. So then he says, after saying you ask me nothing, truly, truly, I say to you, and remember, whenever we get those double trulies, it's like saying, sit up, pay attention. This is like particularly important. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. That's a really big kind of a promise, right? Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. In other words, Jesus is saying, now there's this, there's this access to the Father that's gonna be granted to you because of the cross and because of the resurrection. You're now gonna have direct access to the Father in my name. So when you go to him, you're gonna pray in my name. And then he says this, ask and you will receive, why? That your joy may be full. In other words, he's saying there, all this wonderful access to the Father that we have in prayer, this ability to come to him, this ability to seek him and receive from him, all that we receive in prayer, he says, you receive because now you're gonna be able to pray in my name. I'm, I'm ushering in a new day, a new age in the kingdom now where we will see what things are really all about because of my cross and resurrection. And he says, you're gonna have your prayers answered. And then he says, you're gonna have them answered for, my, for your joy so that your joy would be full. So let's talk about the first part of that. You're gonna have your prayers answered and then talk about the second part of it, for your joy. And then we'll conclude. So remember now, John 15. So this is really tying back to John 15, verse seven, where Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So let's remember that when Jesus makes these kind of grand promises, we shouldn't sort of undercut them or shortchange them and go, well, I don't know that he really means everything. I, I want you to hear that and receive the promise of that, that Jesus is saying he will answer your prayers, but we also shouldn't overshoot it and ask as if it means we just get whatever we want all the time. When we see in John 15, right, We've seen John 15 that Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. In other words, what he's getting at there is remember abiding is this moment by moment connection with Jesus. So he's saying, as you stay moment by moment connected with me, your heart will be so uh, filled with my will and my ways and your eyes will be so set upon me. You'll find yourself asking for the kinds of things that I give, right? Later in the scriptures, we find the instruction, if, if anyone prays according to God's will, they receive. So we do have some conditions, some caveats there, but ultimately what Jesus is talking about in the gospel of John, he's making these really grand promises. He's saying, because of the resurrection, you're gonna find that you have an ability now to abide in me, to stay connected to me. And as you do that, if you'll choose to do that, you will be so directed in mind and in heart towards my purposes in the world and the things that I love that you'll begin to pray prayers and you'll start to see powerful answers to prayer. But I don't want us to move past this. As followers of Jesus, we should expect 
God to answer our prayers powerfully. Now, again, we might even be tempted there to say, well, he always answers. He just either answers yes or no or wait. I mean, and that's true. He often, he can answer our prayers. No, we know that, right? He can. But the text here is talking about when we get those affirmative answers because he says, until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. In other words, he's saying the thing you ask for, you're going to, you're going to get it. So I want us to hear that the resurrection has made a new possibility for seeing Jesus answer our prayers or seeing God answer our prayers through Jesus is better, the better way to say that. But look at then that second question. Why does he say he does that? He says he does it so that our joy will be full. In other words, he answers our prayers because he wants to accomplish his purposes in the world. Yes, we know that. But he also answers our prayers because he delights that we would have an experience of joy in getting our prayers answered. He actually wants us to receive answered prayer so that we would have joy in our hearts. Now, go back to what we said first. We said that the resurrection, the joy of the resurrection can't be taken away from us because ultimately the resurrection has purchased this final victory. And so we know that all sorrow is going to give way to joy, even if it takes all the way until the end. But perhaps we might say, well, so I get that, but is that the only kind of experience of joy is just that one day this is all gonna be made right. And that's good and it's important and it's powerful. But he sort of fills in the gap in between here by saying, I'm also going to make it so that you get your prayers answered a lot as you ask them in my name, as you abide in me. I'm gonna answer your prayers. Ask and you'll receive. And as you receive that, here's what answered prayer is. Answered prayer is a taste of the kingdom to come. Do you know that? When God answers your prayer, it's a little taste of what it's going to be like to be with him forever. And so we should, we should celebrate answered prayers. Let me encourage you today, like those of you, if you're gathered at home and you pray after this, let me encourage you, take some time to pray together after this and pray for folks who are in need. Pray for folks, as we talked about, bearing one another's burdens, the members of our church family who uh, are particularly perhaps susceptible to illness at this time. Let's pray for them. Let's, let's go after that together. I mean, that's the most important thing we can do for one another is to pray. And as we do that, would you take time to thank God for the answers to prayer that you've seen in your life? Take time to just thank him for it. Don't run past it. Just delight, celebrate, right? I mean, as you're, as, as you're going through life, if you never pause and say, I'm gonna thank God for all the ways he's answered prayer, you will be impoverished, I promise you. And you'll be prone to see that joy slipping away and ebbing out of your life because you're not actually recognizing how he's answering your prayer. And he said, he's answering prayer so that your joy would be full. In other words, I'm gonna give you a taste of what the kingdom will be like here and now, whether it be a small answered prayer or a great answered prayer, like a massive answered prayer. What it does is it reminds you that sorrow is gonna give way to joy. Are you with me? Is that, does that make sense? I mean, I, so I want you to see that. I want you to see that part of his reason for answering prayer is so that that joy would not be able to be taken away from you, that it would stay with you. So we've said the joy that we have because of the resurrection can't be taken away because the resurrection empowers answered prayers and that keeps reinforcing, keeps giving us a taste of that final victory of God. So, let me invite the, our worship team to come back up. So as they come, friends, my prayer is that you've, you've received God's word today. You know that God's word is your great need. It's our great need in this time. We have to feed ourselves on God's word. Could I just say particularly, if you are prone to fear, I mean, if, if that's your, and that's, that's, 
Many of us, prone to anxiety, prone to fear. Uh, could I encourage you this week in particular, just don't miss a morning in God's word. Just don't miss a morning of being in the presence of God in prayer and in his word because particularly when circumstances are prone to make us more anxious and we know that's a struggle that we have, we need to be sort of burying ourselves in God's word so that the truth keeps resounding to us. And that's part of what we've been doing here today, this morning, as we gather and we hear God's word proclaimed. It doesn't really matter if a sermon is delivered really well or you know, really poorly. It doesn't matter if it's delivered in front of uh, an empty sanctuary knowing that you're at home receiving this now or if it's delivered in front of a packed house of people. What matters is that God's word is coming into our ears so that we would hear it and receive it. I'm gonna encourage you to, I didn't say this at the beginning, but we're gonna go to worship now and, and just close our time together with a song. But I wanna encourage you, don't give in to fear. Trust the Lord. Know that he's sovereign. Fight against that fear by knowing that his love never leaves you and that he is in control. But also, don't shrink back in fear. Look for ways to bear one another's burdens, to serve each other, and to love each other. In the days ahead, we're gonna be putting things online. I'm gonna be filming some videos for you as well as the rest of our staff where we'll just sort of daily try and point you to God's word and the truth of it and remind you and, and help you think about opportunities and ways that you can serve. So be looking for those. We're gonna sort of be encouraging you. Here's a way that you can serve. Here's a way that you can serve. So we don't wanna just say to you, don't shrink back in fear. Use this as an opportunity, church. Let's be the church in the world. Take every opportunity to do good to, to those that God has called us to and placed us here with. We're gonna try and give you some ideas to help you with that. So let's trade fear for joy this week, yes? All right, let's pray together and then let's worship to close our time together. Lord, we love you, we love your word. Thank you for the timeliness of this word for us. How I love that as we've just gone through the gospel of John systematically before we knew that this week would be what it is that you prescribed for us, John 16, verses 16 through 33, where you tell us to take heart, you have overcome the world. So glad for that. So thank you. I pray that you take um, my best attempt here to explain the truth of that scripture and your words and that you, you cause it to, not my words to land in our hearts, but your word to plant itself in our hearts. And we know that when that happens, it produces a harvest, a harvest of righteousness and joy and peace, all the fruit of the spirit. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you do that. Now we ask that you receive our praise as we gather in your name not all in the same space physically, but we are in your name together, your people, and we worship you today. So receive our praise. You are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.